Well, it is really good to be with you this morning, and uh, I want to welcome anyone who is new here today to Gateway, and also to welcome anyone who's new to us online. And just to let you know that we've been doing a series for, I think it's a year, on the book of Matthew. And we're actually going to take a little break. And I get to spearhead that little break. The break is, um, we're going to be doing a little mini-series called Resurrection Encounters. And um, this morning we're going to talk about the very first person who ever saw Jesus after he had risen from the dead. Now the resurrection of Jesus was obviously the most pivotal, the most world-changing event in the history of mankind. And it was about to be witnessed, verified, and announced for the very first time by a woman. A woman named Mary McLean. No, Magdalene. <laughs> well, that was a slip. You know, here's the funny thing. You know those Bluetooth things that, that catch your name? And they, they, they speak it back to you and you say, you know, whatever, the, the iPad of Mary McLean. And it sounds like Mary Magdalene. It sounds very similar. So delete that. I just said that. I want to... Um, I want to talk about this slide here for a moment. I actually asked someone in our congregation to sketch this for us because I was a little bit tired of the Google Images. And if you go to Google Images and you look up a slide, um, any, any kind of image on Mary Magdalene, you're going to get someone with sort of wild, crazy red hair um, who's obviously a seductress and a temptress. And she's been completely misrepresented. And so I asked Leah Christensen, who goes to this church, if she would... Give us a rendering of her idea of Mary Magdalene. And this is what she came up with. How beautiful is she? So we're going to start in John chapter 20, verse 1. And it says this, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And we're actually going to stop right there. Because we want to give her a little bit of a bio. Who was Mary Magdalene? In every one of the gospel accounts of the resurrection, this woman is mentioned in a prominent way, and John's gospel focuses on her particularly. Now, how many of you here feel like you know who Mary Magdalene was? And don't you find that when you open the New Testament, there are just so many Marys? There's this Mary, the mother of these guys, and that Mary, the mother of those guys, and then there was Mary of Nazareth, and then there was Mary of Bethany, and then there was the mysterious other Mary... And now we have Mary Magdalene. And there's not a huge amount said about her, though there's a swirl of opinion about who she was, and it's actually mostly myth and legend. Here's what we cannot say about her. There's no indication that she was the adulterous woman in John 8 at risk of being stoned. Popular Western Christian belief says that she was a former prostitute. How many of you thought she was? Lots of hands going up. This idea was actually introduced by Pope Gregory the Great, who preached a sermon and changed opinion about this woman in the New Testament, saying that she was a prostitute, that she had been the woman that had poured out the ointment on Jesus' feet, and that that ointment had actually been used in her forbidden acts. And this belief was also perpetuated in our generation by the movie Jesus Christ Superstar. Anybody remember that movie? Hands up. There's a few of us oldies. Do you know I was like 14 when that movie came out? I can still remember every word of every song of that entire album. Do you remember this one? Mary Magdalene's song. I don't know how to love him. 
I don't see why he moves me. He's just a man. He's just a man. And I've had so many men before. Okay, let's stop right there. Because that is pure fabrication. Never happened. It's pure conjecture. All sourced out of Pope Gregory the Great. Eastern Orthodox Christians never depicted her as a prostitute. And there's not a scrap of evidence in the word that she was. She wasn't Lazarus' sister Mary of Bethany. She wasn't named as the one who anointed Jesus' feet with expensive oil and wept over him. And she was not Jesus' wife, as the Da Vinci Code would have us to believe. The details of her life are few, but there's a lot we can learn about her whenever her name is mentioned. Despite the myths surrounding her, we do know that she was one of the most significant and prominent women in the New Testament. The only woman mentioned more times than her is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all identify her as one of Jesus' most devout followers, as a leader, and as we're going to see this morning, a crucial eyewitness of the most dramatic moment in the life of Jesus She appears nine different times in lists of women, and in eight of those lists, her name is at the top. And that indicates that she had a great degree of prominence amongst the women. Among the followers of Jesus, Mary Magdalene's name occurs more often in the Bible than most of the 12 apostles. This was some lady. Here's four things we do know about her. She had been oppressed by demons. The only description that we have of her is found in Mark and Luke, and we learn that she'd been tormented by seven demons. And it's interesting, this use of the number seven, because the Hebrews used to use that as symbolical, as, as symbolic image of fullness or completion. If they said something is full, that seven was the number that symbolized that. It's like us saying a gajillion or a bazillion. In other words, this woman was completely dominated by demons. This was an aggressive stronghold. It was basically she lived in her own hell on earth. Manifestations of demonic oppression in the New Testament were varied. Demoniacs were sometimes insane, like the Gadarene who lived in a graveyard and behaved so fiercely and violently that he used to cut himself. It actually uses that phrase, he cut himself. Have we heard that phrase? Yeah, there's an example of self-harm in the Bible right there. There were other manifestations, blindness, deafness, muteness, seizures. Was Mary bent out of shape with infirmity? Was she harassed by voices in her head? Was she deaf? Was she blind? Did she fall down with seizures? Did she cower and hide from people talking to herself in her own little private world? Or did she rant in the streets making a public nuisance of herself? Well, no one knows because it doesn't say. But whatever the manifestations were, we do know that her life was tortured. And who can imagine the backstory that led up to such demonic infestation? Demonic strongholds, you see, they take years to build. Sometimes they're precipitated by trauma or pain or abuse or repeated sin. And they're fueled by our responses to those things, whether we have unforgiveness or bitterness or anger or dark thoughts, hidden sin, anger, lies. All of this invites demonic presence. Demons don't just come in and take up residence randomly. They need a comfortable place to live. 
And they look for brokenness and they look for a willingness to engage with everything that they represent in order to reside. We ourselves can actually create the platforms for demonic presence. That's why we encourage people. We have a course that we offer here at Gateway specifically called Set Free. If any of you can relate to any of this, I sure can, as you'll find out in a minute. We have a course where we, we pray for people to get set free and cut off from those things that have afflicted us. Mary would likely have been estranged, hopeless, because the enemy we know always isolates us and takes us to the margins of society. But somewhere, somehow, at some time, in all those miracles that the Bible alone even says it cannot contain, he saw her, he called her out, and seeing her torment, he spoke into her darkness, and in one magnificent, extraordinary move of grace, he drove out every single demon from her life. And she didn't do a thing to deserve it. And chances are she didn't even ask for it because we see other examples of demoniacs in the Bible. They always shunned him. What do you have to do with me, son of God? Go away. For perhaps the first time in her years, she experienced absolute peace and sudden end to the emotional chaos and the static in her head, maybe the physical anguish. Her body, soul, and spirit breathed again and she experienced the power of God defeating and collapsing the power of the enemy in her life. You know, I can relate to her in so many ways. I was not raised in a Christian home. Many of you already know because I've spoken this before that I was raised in a New Age home. We were completely immersed in New Age thinking. New Age thinking, I wasn't driven into it. It was driven into me. I mean, we were hardcore we used to go to a community. We lived in Vancouver, and uh, we looked like normal people on the outside, but we were not normal people. We went to a community, a New Age community, a Center for Eastern Philosophies and Study in the interior of BC in, in um, a place called Kootenay Bay where we did all things New Age. And I had, um, if, you, if you've read the Frank Peretti novels, then you've read my history. And... Um, it was my daily reality, and I could take a whole morning to tell you stories. But from infancy on throughout into my teens, there were predictions and pronouncements made over my life by psychic uh, mediums, by numerologists, by astrologists, by Hindu-Indian gurus. And I understood and I experienced, believe you me, the power of the supernatural. I got it. And I used to have demonic visitations in the night. And I was entrapped by my thinking and by, the, by, by just the endless cycle of what I believed my karma or my destiny to be. And it was crippling. And oh, the music. The music of the, of the worship mantras that I used to chant over and over and over because music is big for me and it found a hook in me and it hooked into my soul and it clung to me, it clutched me and it wouldn't let me go. They just kept singing in me. I had some harassment. I had demonic harassment issues. And then in one dramatic moment, and that's another sermon, I came out into an encounter with Jesus Christ and my life was changed forever. The demonic grip over my life snapped on August the 27th, 1975. And Jesus saw me and he called my name and he reached into my darkness. 
the pastor of the church where we started going when he met our family, because this happened, my entire family got saved. When he discovered that we had 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 such a background, he suggested that maybe we have a little bit of a time of prayer and we bring with us in preparation a little list of the involvements that we had been into and he would pray for freedom. Well, the poor man had no idea what was coming his way. We had page after page after page, a binder of stuff, and he just looked at this as eyeballs came out of his head, and he was completely out of his depth with things that he'd never even heard of. But you know what? Jesus wasn't out of his depth at all. And he freed us, and he's continued to free me. And my heart became wholly his, and I was never going to let go. As it was for me, so it was even more so for Mary Magdalene. And it's really, 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 really important that we grasp just that little phrase, she had been tormented by demons, because that matters. Because that one thing we know about her determines what we know about her from then on. Secondly, she became a disciple of Jesus Christ. Radical rescue produces radical following. And we see throughout the Gospels that she became one of his devoted, faithful followers. It's interesting to note that other demoniacs who he set free, he sent them away and go and proclaim it, but not Mary. She became one of his faithful followers. She was actually invited into the inner circle. She was with the primaries. And I think sometimes we, we eradicate the women under that subtitle of disciples because we consider them, well, they weren't one of the 12. But women were disciples of Jesus. And she became one of his disciples. You know, traveling around with a rabbi as a woman was unheard of in those days. It was strongly conflicted with traditional female roles in Jewish society. But here was a whole new perspective and practice that flew in the face of convention. But Jesus was counterculture. He leveled barriers that existed between people and between God, and he didn't make the women sit on the other side of the field and give them diluted theology. He let them come near. He taught them openly. This was not heard of. He engaged their minds. He ministered to their hearts, and he changed their lives. Mary had prolonged, sustained exposure to Jesus. She had face-to-face relationship and friendship with him. She had proximity. Thirdly, she became a supporter of Jesus. Not only did Mary become one of Jesus' disciples, she became one of his providers. And we all know from our Bibles that Jesus acknowledged that God was his provider, yes? Well, guess what? Guess who God the Father used? Mary Magdalene, amongst a few others. Luke 8 tells us that she and a few other women traveled with him and supported him by providing food, money, resources for him and his followers. Mary was from Magdala, which was a thriving fishing village in Galilee. Her freedom to follow Jesus and support him financially suggests that she was an independent woman of some wealth. Perhaps she had a family money, or maybe she had her own business. I kind of like to think she had a little thriving hummus business on the side. (laughs) I can relate to this woman. Her transformation resulted not only in her following, but in her support. She gave herself and she gave her money. Now think about this. Jesus had a profound mission to accomplish here on the earth, yes? But this mission needed financial support. 
They had to travel and find lodging. Their sandals wore out. Their clothing needed laundering. It needed replacing. And they needed to eat every day for three years. They needed to eat. And Jesus did some incredible miracles of multiplication. And he fed 5,000 people. But every day for ordinary day, they had to eat. And they got food the regular way like normal people did. There was a whole lot of supernatural wherever Jesus was. And there was a whole lot of natural. Mary Magdalene helped propel Jesus' mission on earth. How amazing is that? In a practical and important way. And fourthly, she followed him to the end. Nearly everywhere you see Jesus in the Gospels, you find that Mary Magdalene was with him. And you get these three precious snapshots. Firstly, she followed him in his journeys for three years. Secondly, John tells us that she followed him to the cross She stayed near him throughout the unimaginable ordeal of seeing him nailed to that cross. Most of Jesus' other disciples ran away. They actually ran away the night before at his arrest. But not Mary. She stayed. And thirdly, Matthew 27 tells us that she followed his body to the tomb. And she remained there. And we read that while Joseph of Arimathea laid Jesus in the tomb, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were were sitting there nearby opposite the tomb watching and what a moving scene that was. She was not able to pull herself away from him even after his death. Sitting there in the shadows of the tomb, numb, devastated, in shock, watching while they laid his dear body in the tomb, how deep was her darkness. And I wonder, did that old enemy of hers take advantage of her and her vulnerability did he come and he whispered to her and said you see I won and I'm going to have you back that's what he does and sometimes extreme disappointment makes us vulnerable to old ways of thinking but here was Mary sitting in the shadows watching this displaying extraordinary courage in her public devotion to this rebel leader when all of the other disciples had fled. She associated with him in his life and she associated with him in his death. And she never left him. That's the backstory. Now we're going to pick it up in John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Though Mary had been party to conversations about Jesus' death and resurrection, she wasn't really a buy-in. It hadn't clicked. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other reached reached the tomb first. He outran Peter. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there in the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but not Mary. Nope, 
Mary just stayed. She just stayed. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Isn't that interesting? We don't really know why she didn't know it was him. Maybe it was because she was crying so hard and she was so distraught. Or maybe it's because he just looked so different. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And even the sound of his voice didn't tweak. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And then Jesus said, Mary. And it was when he called her name that she recognized him. How precious is that? She turned and she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. This is perhaps the greatest recognition scene in human history. The first person to ever set eyes on the resurrected Jesus. And I want to just highlight two important things about this revealing of himself to Mary. The first and most obvious, again, is this. He revealed himself to a woman. And Ken mentioned this last Sunday. About the fact that in Eastern culture, women had no credibility as witnesses to testify in a court of law. Their testimony... And their witness were dismissed purely on the basis of their gender as women. And here's Jesus revealing himself not only to a woman, but he commissions her and sends her to testify, proclaim, and announce what she has witnessed. He's resting the full weight of the most astounding event in history on the testimony of a woman. Remember that Peter and John were literally a few minutes away running back to their home and he could have revealed himself to them, to Peter and John, two of the most important of the twelve. But he did not. And secondly, and this is very simple, he appeared not because she had great faith, but because she was there. Everybody was devastated by the death of Jesus, but they'd all left. She alone stayed. You know, many commentators have studied this. They have written reams of their speculations on why Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. And when it's all said and done, the answer is simple. She was there. She was still there. I want to end this morning by just talking about what Jesus said to Mary. 
And you know, we're so guilty of hurriedly running through the scriptures and thoughtlessly reading these black words on a white page. And we read mechanically and we make Jesus so one-dimensional. I think I've said this at Blueprints, you know, they're like cut-out cardboard figures. They're just flat. It's just these, these figures in the Bible. They just lie flat on the page. And we have to really contextualize what we're reading and really um, give thought to what had just happened in these three days. And we have to use our imaginations, our godly imaginations, our sanctified minds, to be able to grasp fully what this scene was all about. So what had just happened? Well, Colossians 2 describes what had gone on at the cross. And now we're contextualizing. We were dead because of our sins and our sinful nature. But God made us alive. With Christ, for he forgave all of our sins. He canceled the record of every wrong and every charge against us. And he took it and he nailed it to the cross. That's what happened. And in this way, he disarmed, he stripped the rulers and the authorities, the spiritual rulers. He shamed them publicly by his triumphant victory over the cross. That's what happened on the cross. But what happened after that? After Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea laid him in the tomb, did, he just, did his body just lay there for three days? First Peter 3 tells us what went on. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And he was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. During those three days in the tomb, Jesus, though dead in body but alive in spirit, went into Hades or hell and proclaimed, preached to imprisoned spirits who had rebelled in disobedience to God. And what did he proclaim? Triumph. He proclaimed his victory over Satan and all his hosts. That word proclaim is the Greek word caruso. And it means to herald, announce triumph, like a general or a king would have a herald announce his victory. Jesus had triumphed over death, over sin, over hell, over demons, and over Satan himself. And this triumphant champion. This is the one who Mary encountered outside that tomb. This one, freshly returned from his victory. Not mild-mannered Jesus. Not flat cardboard Jesus. Not Jesus subdued and wearing a halo as art history would wrongfully render him. Not this That just says nothing. And he even is carrying an axe, and I don't understand why. <laughs> we take our cues from stuff like this. The world takes its cues from images like this, but this is not who she saw, and that's not how she responded. We can take that picture down. She didn't meet Jesus all battered and bruised having just been through a grueling death experience. 
Not Jesus speaking all demurely without expression. No! She met a conquering warrior who was filled, filled with every fiber of his being with that Holy Spirit who had just resurrected his mortal body out of that tomb. Right? That Holy Spirit who had just raised him from the dead. He was still full of that Holy Spirit. Not one millimeter of him not filled with the light of God. That's who Mary met that day. He had just fulfilled his father's will in passionate love and pulled off the greatest rescue of all time for a lost world and destroyed for all time the power of hell and removed death's sting. Is it any wonder that Mary rushed to him to cling and not let go? But there was something else in his expression, passionate, joyful, anticipation in his eyes the anticipation not of a savior but of a son about to finally be reunited with his father and all of heaven's hosts the old testament writer spoke about this prophetically about this moment that was just very shortly about to happen Psalm 24, lift up your heads, you gates. Lift up your heads, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who's saying this? All of heaven. It's a roar. Who is he, the king of glory, the Lord Almighty? He is the king of glory. Psalm 47 records the fanfare. It says, the Lord ascends with ear-splitting shouts of joy. He takes his throne with the sounding of the trumpets. Sing the highest songs of praise to our king, for he is triumphant. Psalm 68 records that Jesus was going to ascend on high, leading a host of captives with him. Psalm 110 records the Father's words when he got there. Sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. And Psalm 16 records Jesus' response to his Father. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This was just about to happen shortly. And this was the anticipation in his eyes. Is it any wonder? He said, don't cling to me. We don't have to get all weird and theological about it. He was going home. He was going to be reunited with all of heaven's hosts. So there was anticipation of joy in reuniting with his father, but there was one more thing. There was anticipation... That is the best news for us. He said to her, I am ascending to my father and your father. My God and your God. You see, everything was about to change. Jesus had just made a way. He had broken down everything that kept us distance from God and restored us to relationship with him. Through his death on the cross, we were restored as his children. We were his sons and his daughters. The alienation was over. Jesus' Father, our Father. Jesus' God, our God. 
And he underscores this when he says, go tell my brothers. Like Ken said, he was affirming his love for them. But there was something even more than that. He was affirming that they had now become sons. They had become Jesus' brothers. Sonship. But here's the truly amazing thing. In ascending, he wasn't just going to heaven to sit down at the right hand of the Father and shut the gates. No. He left the gates open. They're open, people. He was making a way for us to ascend with him into heaven where there is an open door. And this is what Mary Magdalene was about to know. And this is now open to us. In ascending, he was about to lead a host of captives to heaven. Your soul and my soul. And not when we die. Now. Through believing in him and receiving his gift to us, we have intimate union and incorporation into Jesus Christ. So that where he is, we are. Where he is, we are. We have two addresses. I've said that to you before. We have two addresses. And though we live and we move and we have our being on this earth, we are also with him in heaven. Now, free, immediate, unlimited access. Paul tells us that in Ephesians 1, we are in Christ. And he goes on, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Where? In the heavenly places. We're blessed here. We're blessed there. We can access all our spiritual blessings in heaven, where we're seated with him, because we have new addresses. One of my favorite Bible commentators who died long before I was born said this, Don't dismiss this as pulpit rhetoric. Do not say that it is mystical and incomprehensible and cannot be put into practice amidst the distractions of daily life. Brothers and sisters, Jesus made a way for us and it's real. It's in him and it's through him. And Hebrews says that we can boldly draw near with confidence, with hearts full of assurance and faith. This isn't Bible rhetoric. We can experience and encounter and engage with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit at any time. How? We encounter him in his word. We don't just read for information or devotional duty. We open these pages and we say, Lord, I want to encounter you today. I want to know you. I want to see you. I want to talk to you. I want to understand who you are. I want you to make these pages come alive because these pages are alive. They're living and active. You can't hurry through them. Take some time to encounter him through his living word. We can encounter him through prayer, conversation, listening, how to hear him. If you don't know how to hear him, I think you all do, but some maybe feel like they don't hear. And how do you discern how you hear? We have a course, Hearing God. It's starting right now. They've had one session. You can go to the rest of them. Learn how to hear God and encounter him. We can encounter him through our worship, in our surrender, in our singing, in our communion. And we can just spend time with him, enjoying who he is. Because Jesus, people... He meets us where we are here on this address. And we can meet him where he is in his address. Because we have two. And we have access. He has access to us. 
we have access to him. I do have a title for this message. I'm going to tell you what it is now. Stand where you can see him. I get this from the life of Mary Magdalene. She remained in proximity with him and she stood where she could see him from the beginning to the end. And maybe you're here this morning and you can relate to her former life of oppression. So many of us can and still do. Creating those structures in our lives for whatever reason or forever, whatever initiated that in our lives. We have these things and we can't seem to break free. If you're here today, we can pray with you and set you on the right course. Trust me, I know. I lived it. You can be blessed instead of oppressed. If you don't know him, you can, you can know him today. Maybe you've never ever heard him call your name. I think he wants you to hear that this morning. He wants to call your name. He loves you. He's 100% wholeheartedly for you. He paid a very hefty price for you to become a son or a daughter. And if you already know him, you might not consider yourself to be a person of great faith. Remember those people that had such proximity with him? They were with him all the time, doing everything that he did, listening to every word that he said. They didn't believe that he was going to rise. They were shell-shocked. They were not people of great faith, but they were people of proximity. And I do get that from Mary. We can be a people of proximity. Stand where you can see them. It's that simple. Jesus' ascension into heaven did not make him physically remote. It made him spiritually near. He told her, you can't cling to me now, but I'll tell you what. When he ascended, we can cling to him all we want. There's a never-ending cling right there. Never-ending cling. You can throw yourself and fall face down at his feet and never leave. Every moment of your day, every situation you're in, every argument, every conflict, every uncertainty, every pain, every trauma, every situation, you can cling. He's given you that access into heaven. Live your life intentionally on earth. Live your life intentionally in heaven where he is and where you are with him. I'd like to just, um, you know, it's funny, I, I sort of had this idea that maybe we'd sing a really grandiose resurrection song after this message. And this morning I woke up and I just heard a song singing through me. And it was a Holy Spirit moment. Because remember, I got cut off from all the other music. It's gone. But this is the song, and I've asked Will if he would just sing that for us. And can we just take a moment while he sings? I would love it. You know, feel free to stand, feel free to sit. But let's just take a moment with the Lord. If you've lost proximity with him, you can regain that this morning as you draw near. If you've never had proximity with him, you don't even know him, we would love to pray with you after the service. Please come and talk to us. We've all, many of us have been there. We understand darkness. We understand oppression. If that's you, please come and get prayer. We understand the need for that. 
But my heart this morning, just as the Holy Spirit woke me up with that song, was that just we let it minister to us as we take a step towards him this morning, every single one of us in this room, to re-engage with the Lord Jesus Christ. Not the meek and mild, subdued, cardboard figure that we sometimes make him, but the resurrected champion king who conquered sin and death for you to make you a son, to make you a daughter. The alienation is over. Let us not increase the alienation. Let us draw near.